Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today I'm delighted to welcome Erin M. White. Erin's a reader in Welsh history at Aberystwyth University in Wales, and today we're talking to Erin about her new book, just published by the University of Wales Press. It's called The Welsh Methodist Society, The Early Societies in Southwest Wales, 1737 to 1750. Erin, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, It's great to have you uh, on the show and to be able to talk a little bit about your work. But before we do, could you tell us something about yourself? Well, as you said, I'm based here in the Department of History and Welsh History in Aberystwyth in Wales. Um, I've been here a long time because I was actually here as a student as well. Um, I teach early modern history with a particular focus on Welsh history and I'm I'm one of the members of staff in the department who teach in both Welsh and English. That's great and as we move towards the book itself could you tell us a little bit about its background obviously it's a subject you've been working on for a considerable length of time. It is um, as I did my PhD in this sort of area but I've done quite a lot of work and published to the medium of Welsh and over the years I was increasingly being asked, well, are you going to write something in English? Um, And to be honest, in many ways, it's easier to write about this in Welsh because of the terminology that is perhaps more familiar still in the Welsh language. I mean, when you say society in English, you have to qualify it with Methodist society, whereas in Welsh, it's a lot easier to say sayat, and people immediately know it's a particular kind of forum for focused discussion about thoughts and feelings. Um, So in many ways, it is a lot easier. Um, to write about it in Welsh, especially as well when um, a lot of the sources are in Welsh. And it's one of the most difficult things in the book was to try and translate some of the verse by William Williams and some of the quotes from the original Welsh. Um, But I was increasingly thinking that I needed to kind of fill a gap in historiography and and to try and discuss this with the medium of English, because, you know, there's there's a lot of great work being done on the 18th century evangelical revival more broadly but and quite a lot of historians who don't have access to the Welsh language sometimes tended to use, you know, fairly general secondary literature in order to try and address what was happening in Wales. So um, I'm hoping this kind of bridges that gap in a way and, and, and makes some of the Welsh experience perhaps more familiar um, because, you know, we do have a good set of records here. There is this um, experience in southwest Wales, which is quite telling in terms of what the impact of the evangelical revival could be. So this is a sort of um, attempt to um, let people know what was going on in this part of the world. And the book does that brilliantly. It really does. Um, you, you top and tail the book with the 1851 census and you remind us uh, in, in the introduction and in the, in the conclusion as well uh, that the 1851 census identified in a very striking way that the Calvinistic Methodists, the group whose origins you describe in this book, the Welsh Methodist Society, had become by that point the largest religious denomination um, in the Principality. Now, it's quite a staggering result, isn't it? But did the early years of the movement's history suggest that would be inevitable? No, far from it, really. Um, And this is one of the, you know, as you said, staggering things about it, that in the course of a century, there is this transformation. And the impact on Wales was far more than it was on England or, you know, a number of other countries that experienced the evangelical revival. Um, 
it wasn't obvious. And, you know, um, back in the 1920s, 1930s, one historian of the Methodist movement, R.T. Jenkins, actually wrote this kind of satir satirical essay. What if Howell Harris had never been born? Which is kind of, you know, a wonderful life as a sort of with Howell Harris in the middle of it. So sort of then imagining what if there had not been Howell Harris? And he he pictures this sort of scenario where there had been this short lived group called the Rolandites in southwest Wales. And they, you know, um, caused a little bit of a stir, a bit of a kerfuffle and then had died out. Um, so, you know, that was a potential scenario that, you know, you could imagine this being um a little bit of a blip um that didn't last very long and i mean, the suggestion there was that you needed the kind of the organizational abilities of howell harris as well as the you know the, the preaching and the hymn writing you needed somebody who did take control of the movement in order to ensure that it it carried on and succeeded but certainly in the early years i think some of the response as well from the leaders of society seemed to suggest that they thought well this is just another little bit of uh, an enthusiastic interlude and it'll not come to anything because the numbers were very small originally and this is one of the points i was trying to make because sometimes in the past the sort of view of history written by welsh nonconformists in the 19th century and early 20th century was very much about you know almost the inevitability of the progress of nonconformity and the impact of the revival and sometimes almost overstating the way that you know it started and it just carried on sweeping all before it whereas the reality was a much more staggered gradual process and you know up until 1760s 1770s one could easily see the the movement dying out it, it gained a sort of second momentum after 1762 there was a fresh outbreak of revival and then it it did then start to have a much broader impact across wales started off very much in the south wales area and then gradually moved to north wales so it's a, a story of you know fits and starts and gradual progress and persistence uh, in many ways in order for it to actually get to the position it was in 1851 and of course having achieved that position in 1851 of having the largest numbers of worshippers well, they were then going to bask in that. Um, and this was the kind of the message then from, you know, in the second half of the 19th century, that nonconformity was the religion of Wales. Now, one of the, I suppose, challenging things about writing about groups like this, especially in those very contingent, precarious early years of their existence, is finding a suitable archive base, isn't it? And you, you write about this uh, in the book and you, you explain how, various archival um, materials have, have, have been brought together and you talk about the different language uh, languages that are represented there, Welsh obviously, also English and even some Latin uh, in, in, in some of the early uh, manuscripts. C could you tell us a little bit more in our, in our conversation about, about how the archive was put together and what losses there are uh, in our in, in our in our perhaps even partial knowledge of some of the events or personnel of the early years, and and how good our sense is of of the cohesive whole. Um, that's a good question, and we've been very lucky in many ways. Um, a lot of the archive depends on the central role of Howell Harris, because um, I mean the archive is now deposited in the National Library of Wales. And a lot of the early manuscripts relating to the 18th century are part of what is now called the Trevecca group of manuscripts. And Trevecca was Howell Harris's home. 
So for many, many years, a lot of these records were kept in his home, which became, of course, the centre for a Methodist religious community. And then by the 19th century became actually the Calvinistic Methodist denominational college for South Wales. So there's a continuity there which helped preserve the records. The fact that it was, it was always to some degree part and parcel of the Methodist movement um, meant that that house maintained those records for a long period of time up into the 19th century. I mean, some bits were borrowed and stolen and, you know, obviously there were some losses, but a lot of material was preserved. And we do owe Howard Harris a debt for being so meticulous and obsessive about his correspondence and his notes. So um, he copied a lot of the letters he sent before sending them. So we have a lot of copies of his correspondence and he kept all the letters he received. He also maintained diaries over a long period of time. Um, so a lot of his manuscripts are the core of the collection. But we also, of course, have the association records, the governing body of the movement. Those records were also kept by Harris in Trevecca. And a lot then of the material that was sent to the association was kept. And that included the society reports. And this has been one of the most important elements for this particular work is the reports that came from all the corners um, of Wales, um, giving an account of the progress of the societies and the members of the societies. So we have a lot of information, particularly up to 1750. Once Howell Harris dropped out of the mainstream movement for a while, there is a gap in um, a lot of the records after that. The records become more patchy, but there's quite a good run of records up until 1750. We do know that there are gaps. The original um, records and probably notebooks of the society superintendents are missing because they would have been kept by those individuals. And it doesn't look as if any of them have been preserved. And that would have been a, a goldmine for a historian if you had the superintendent's own notes on his you know, fortnightly visits to the societies and his account of the members, as opposed to the sort of um, summary that was sent to the association every few months. That would have been, you know, an excellent source of material. Um, there are also other gaps because some of Howell Harris's diaries are missing. There's one in particular. The most frustrating is that um, part of his diary from 1737 is not there because he kept his diary in a, a series of notebooks. There's getting nearly 300 of these um, small books with full of this dreadful handwriting. Um, but we do know that the diary, the notebook for part of 1737 is missing. And that would have been the diary that would have given the account of his first meeting with Daniel Rowland. Um, it was in August 1737. The two met for the first time, agreed to collaborate. And that, in a sense, was the birth of the movement, because once those two got together and decided to work together, from then on, you start to have an actual movement forming rather than a couple of, move, of individuals being impacted by religious conversion. Now, Erin, you write a lot about literacy and literature. Writing is a very important part or um, and other forms of literary composition are, very, are a very important part of this movement. But how Harris strikes me as being um, unusually productive as a writer, 300, di 300 notebook diaries. Who is he keeping the diary for? Well, that's a good question as well. There are times when he did suggest that he might think about publishing it, but he was usually dissuaded because, I mean, he was often his own worst enemy. Reading his diaries is laborious. Um, 
he wrote copiously every day. And it's quite frustrating as a historian because he will give a sort of address at the start of the of the day that he is in somewhere or other. Um, and he will tell us if he's going somewhere else. But he will not name the person whose, ho whose house he's staying at. Um, he will often tell you that he's spoken to somebody or other and again won't name them. He doesn't give you details that you would like as a historian. Um, he'll tell you that he's been to a society, but he won't tell you the numbers that were there or how many women or, you know, he won't give you those kind of facts and figures. A lot of the diaries is own introspective account of his spiritual condition. So it can be very repetitive from day to day. Um, there's a lot of talk about how sinful he is, and it's very much a Methodist view of sin. So, you know, if he thinks he hasn't been as strictly focused on God's work as he should have been, that he says that he's fallen from grace. You know, his his definition of sinfulness is is a very severe one, a very strict one. So he's he's it's very much a kind of record of his own spiritual journey, um, but with some sprinkling of kind of historical um, detail, which can be very useful for us. Mm. Would it be fair to make a, a link between that very scrupulous introspection at an individual level and the Methodist view of history that you talk about in general? Yeah, I mean, there is that same sense of, um, you know, a kind of an idea as well of sort of the progress of the of God's elect, to a certain degree, I suppose, you know, of the idea of um, trying to do God's work in the world. So as well as trying to do that in an individual basis, there's also the idea of trying to transform um, Wales um, so that, you know, um, God's work is being done. Um, and of course, the Methodist view of history, in a way, developed as a result of this idea that the Methodists had had this um, startling impact. They interpreted their work as having really cut across a period of complete darkness. Um, the kind of propaganda, in a way, that appears, for instance, in some of William Williams's poetry is very much before 1737, everything was darkness and stagnation. And then the light of the revival came. And, um, you know, that was perpetuated, really, in the 19th century with this idea, particularly after the triumph of the religious census, that Wales was a nonconformist country. Um, and one can see that writing from that perspective of triumph, really, from the second half of the 19th century onwards. And it, it took a long time, really, to break away from that and to have a more kind of secular view, perhaps, of the revival. And one of the things you emphasise in, I suppose, in opposition to earlier generations of denominational historians is that th there is no there is no year zero for the revival, that the planning or the preparation for this re religious movement is quite long standing. Can you tell us anything about the religious background to the movement you describe? Yeah, um, again, I mean, the Methodists would say, you know, there is a year zero. Um, but even they would argue that there was a certain amount of work preceding them. Their, uh, William Williams says that a lot of people were hoping for revival and working towards revival. And, you know, it's almost how far back do you go with this? Because you can take a narrative, really, that starts from the 16th century with the first kind of efforts to translate the scriptures into Welsh, which finally occurred in um, under the reign of Elizabeth with the sanction being given to translate the Bible 
and the Book of Common Prayer and to have divine service in Wales. So the complete Bible appeared in Welsh in 1588, which is comparatively early in terms of languages in Europe. And from then on, what you have is this sort of campaign to make sure that the Bible was read, that it wasn't just something that was used in the pulpit on a Sunday, but there was something that was being read much more widely, was informing people and was therefore leading to a true sense of of the Protestant faith. Um, and there's an ongoing campaign from then onwards, which lead, takes us into the 17th century and attempts to try and um, um, improve standards of literacy and reading um, and religious knowledge in general. And one can see that the Methodists themselves were, to some degree at least, influenced by 17th century descent. There is a link there. Um, so, you know, in a way they they did benefit from other people's labours, um, particularly perhaps, you know, the growth of literacy through circulating schools, charity schools by the 1730s and 1740s. So in some way, how long is a piece of string? You know, you can see the roots of the revival going quite far back in many ways. But nevertheless, it's it's really during the 1730s, isn't it, that we see this um, transatlantic evangelical movement beginning to, to, to take off and obviously it has an impact in Wales as well. You, you, you give us some really wonderful discussion of some of the early leadership of the Welsh Methodist societies, um, both clergy, members of the established church, and also uh, exhorters. Um, and, and of course, they were members of the established church too, although you, you tell us in the book that some of them were sort of drifting off into dissent uh, and others needed training, for example, on how to use a knife and fork. <laughs> what, 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 were some of the, what were some of the issues in developing a, a cadre of leaders in this period? Well, um, I mean, they were a mixed bunch, but I mean, generally they, they were literate. So one expected them to come from perhaps the middling sorts of society in general. The leadership, the exhorters tended to be um, middling in status. There's, there's a certain degree of variety. Some of them were quite well off and shading towards sort of lesser gentry and quite well established. Others we see were really struggling to make a livelihood. You, some people like, you know, we hear about Richard William Dabby, who had a you know number of children and was struggling to try and feed them and continue to preach. So there are, you know, there's a variety there in terms of economic and social background. Um, and there's also a variation in terms of their educational background as well. Um, I mean, some of the exhorters had a degree of education, maybe going to somewhere like Carmarthen Grammar School, but for a lot of them, it would have been the charity schools, the, the circulating schools, of course, from the 1730s onwards, were phenomenal in terms of their impact in Wales and improved literacy drastically. So, one does see some of the exhorters coming through those circulating schools, people like Richard Tibbet, for instance, um, who also worked sort of, you know, threshing the fields and um, was at times struggling to try and find um, some way to make a livelihood, but also working as an assistant to Griffith Jones and his circulating schools. So um, it, it was quite difficult, of course, then to, to train them all as well. Um, and one of the kind of the struggles that you sense how Harris is getting in this through the in the association was this kind of struggle to try and make sure they were all on message, as it were. And um, that was quite difficult. There was a lot of attempt to try and um, ensure that they were appropriate for the task. There was a sort of trial period for all the exhorters. They would have somebody kind of looking over their shoulder to make sure they were fit for the job. Um, 
but I mean, their kind of enthusiasm um, and commitment is often quite staggering when you think they, you know, they often had full time jobs, but it, they were also, you know, committed to going around these societies of an evening, um, traveling often miles in dreadful weather in the Welsh winter um, to try and, and maintain this kind of movement. So the movement did rely a lot on them. We hear a lot about the leadership, but it's really that grassroots level of exhorter that perhaps helped maintain this movement. Now, there's a lot of variety among leader, the leaders of this movement, isn't there? But there's also some theological variety. C can you tell us a little bit about why the Welsh Methodists turned towards Calvinism when the English Methodists tended not to? And could you also maybe tell us something about the the spectrum of religious views that was tolerated uh, among the Welsh Methodists, and perhaps even something about their relationship with the Moravians. Because mm. it's it's quite an interesting period, the 1730s, 1740s. There is this kind of melting pot of the evangelical revival where you have quite a lot of streams involved in it, like you mentioned the Moravians, um, the Wesley brothers um, on the more Calvinist side. Um, it's interesting that there seems very little discussion in Wales about the fact that they we're going to tend towards Calvinism. Um, Harris at one point recalls the fact that, well, you know, it's almost a miracle how we've all just agreed straight away that, you know, our view is Calvinist. Um, so there's little discussion of why that happens. But I mean, that was pretty much in accord with the kind of moderate dissent that seemed to be uh, prevalent in Wales at the time. So um, it, it did also then, you know, mean that there was a certain welcome amongst the early dissenting groups as well. In the early years of the revival, um, some of the dissenters did cooperate um, with the Methodists because they were compatible theologically. Um, but one can see, of course, that there were then implications in terms of the relationship with Methodists elsewhere. And the alliance quite early on was with George Whitfield because he was of the same kind of Calvinist viewpoint, whereas relationship became quite strained with the Wesley brothers. There was a time when Harris, for instance, would go up to London and would um, you know, preach in the Fetter Lane Society with the Wesleys. But the time came that you know, he went up to London, went along to the Fetter Lane Society to speak and was basically heckled. He was silenced by the uh, congregation who were shouting at him, Christ died for all. And he had to sit down, basically. Um, so there was a, a split in the 1740s. Um, so there is, you know, there is a lot of tension between these different theological viewpoints. In Wales, there's a degree of toleration, but one can see as well that that could be pushed too far. I mean, Harris, of course, is the obvious example of this, but there were others as well. I mean, um, Peter Williams, who's one of the leaders who emerged by the end of the 1740s, was later also expelled because of his view of the Trinity. And it seemed to be very difficult to get an orthodox view of the Trinity and maintain it throughout your entire career, um, you know, for some of the Methodists. Um, so, and there was a degree of toleration, but Harris did seem to go too far for a lot of his colleagues, um, particularly on the whole issue of the influence of Moravianism on him. Um, he was... Harris was the member of the Welsh Methodists who was most inclined to seek alliances outside the movement. He was the link, really, with English Methodism, with the Moravians. He was the one who was their sort of ambassador at large. Um, and it was sometimes 
suggested he was forming far too close a link with the Moravians and he was influenced by them. Um, and one can see similarities, of course, with the Moravians. This, you know, the, the um, emphasis on personal experience. There's a lot of um, what overlap one can see. And, and certainly Harris, of course, when he left the Methodist movement in the 1750s, he did go on to establish a kind of religious community, which seemed to be very much in the mould of Moravian communities as well. Um, so it was a period when a lot of influences were coming into play. And it took a while, probably, for Welsh Methodism to formulate itself, to sort of decide this is exactly who we are. So in the early years, there was a greater reception for different ideas. But you do see a kind of a, a hardening where the boundaries between Methodism and dissent were set more severely, more strictly, for instance, during the 1740s. Um, so increasingly toleration lessened um, and possibly that also included you know um, uh, um, a clamp down on things like women being allowed to speak because we can see in the early years at least one woman was allowed to do a certain amount of preaching but that doesn't seem to have continued so one can see as the movement became more regulated um, and moved more towards a denomination it became rather more rigid, perhaps, in its belief structure and its procedures. Now, that, that, that's fascinating, Erin. Could, could you tell us something more about one particular woman that, that Harris was associated with, that being Sydney Griffiths? <laughs> yeah, um, she's known as Madame Griffith, of course, um, which was the, the um, term often used in Wales in the 18th century as a sort of um, sign of respect, which it showed that she was of a sort of gentry background. She did come from a very good family in North Wales. And she was married to um, the owner of Kevin Amulch estate in, in North Wales, who was supposed to be a bit of a brute. He wasn't particularly nice um, person. He was supposed to be quite violent towards her. Um, and she seemed to be looking for some kind of outlet, some kind of escape. And by 1748, she encountered Howell Harris on one of his journeys to North Wales. Um, I mean, he periodically would go to North Wales, would generally be um, shouted at and assaulted and would go home with his tail between his legs. But in 1748, he, he made a trip to North Wales and encountered Madame Griffith and she came down to see him in Trevecca. Now, of course, by this point, Harris had been married for a few years. Um, but his kind of explanation of their relationship was that it was a purely spiritual one and that she was a prophetess. Um, who revealed to him God's will. And he refers to her constantly as this sort of divine guide almost. So she was given a status in the movement that no other woman was given at this point. She was allowed to attend association meetings on this basis that she revealed the will of God to Harris. But a lot of his co-workers had grave misgivings about this. And of course, it was being gossiped about. Um, George Whitfield and his wife, you know, rebuked Harris about this because they said, well, people are talking. So even if they didn't believe there was anything immoral in this relationship, a lot of his co-workers were making the point, well, this is leading to the movement being brought into disrepute. This is extremely unwise. But I mean, one can see from his diaries, he was totally besotted with her. Um, he was convinced that God intended for his wife to die and for Sidney Griffith's husband to die so that they could um, be married um, and live together to serve the Lord. She, she died in 1752. And in some ways, that was his 
salvation in terms of the Methodist movement because he'd already left the movement by 1752. But the fact that she was out of the picture by then meant that he he could be reconciled um, by 1763. I think if she continued to be part of his life, it would have been very, very difficult. Um, his wife had a very difficult time, needless to say, throughout all of this, because if she um, showed any kind of reservations about the relationship between Harris and, and Madame Griffith, she was accused of being possessed by the devil. Um, so it was a, an interesting period, certainly, um, for Harris and for the for his colleagues. What an extraordinary story. Well, Erin, <laughs> we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Um, yes, I'm doing a little bit more work on the whole theme of women and um, Methodism and preaching. I'm, I'm trying to trace some of the earliest uses of the um, word pregethraig in Welsh, which is the feminine form of preacher, because Wales is, Welsh is a very gendered language. So the word for preacher in Welsh is actually pregethor or a preaching man, a man who preaches. And I'm, I'm trying to trace the, the female uses, the feminine form of that. Um, and I've, I found that one of the first usages is actually 1770s in the 1770s. And I'm trying to see when it becomes more prevalent, when it becomes kind of acceptable to, to refer to a woman preacher. Well, that sounds like a great project. Um, for now, I want to say thank you for writing this book, The Welsh Methodist Society, just published by University of Wales Press 2020. And thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on to the show and your time and talking about it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.